0: their pleasures, their money, their time to be with you. Brian said at a staff meeting, at the heart of all we do here is the desire for you guys to know, experience, be transformed and healed by the love of God. To know and understand God's rescue plan to save you from your brokenness, from your hurts, I tremble because this is the greatest message we have to offer. And I want so much for your eyes to be opened, for your spirits to grasp this. And I know that my words are not enough to bring a change into your life. I don't want God's magnificent, indescribable, incomprehensible love to simply be reduced to my weak words and my weak arguments and powers of persuasion. So I want to open tonight in prayer. Lord, this is your mission. This is you all about you and your rescue plan to save us. It's not up to the staff, the counselors, the speaker to bring new birth. All we can do, Lord, is in our stumbling, fumbling way to try to stay faithful to your word and that is my desire tonight, Lord, that the words that I say would be from you, that I would speak as the oracles of God so that you might receive the glory, Lord, and that these young people here, these precious young people would receive this most precious gift, an understanding of your rescue plan, and that they would understand what the meaning of life is really all about. There are three possibilities when it comes to salvation. The first one is that everybody gets saved. If that's the case, take a nap. Because we have none of us, we all have our our ticket to heaven. We all get saved. But Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. Paul, the Apostle Paul warned people night and days with tears pleading with people, warning every man. There is a terrible consequence to rejecting God's plan of salvation. And it made the Son of God weep to think about people suffering. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than to experience eternity apart from God. Jesus said, don't fear man who can destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. The second possibility is that God goes eeny, meeny, miny, mo with people who are saved, and it doesn't matter what we do. Some people have an extreme form of fatalism, Scripture clearly teaches the Doctrine of Election, where God, before time begins, selects who He will save. But that's from God's perspective. From our perspective, the message is, whosoever will, may come. What basis God makes that decision, we won't know. Our minds are too small to comprehend the purposes of God. The third possibility is that there is a component to saving faith. There is something that sets us apart. Something we do, something we receive. There's something that puts, changes us from the category of those who are going to experience the eternal misery and destruction of hell and brings us, and makes us children of the light, makes us people who get to experience heaven. And I don't know about you, but I think that's gotta be the most important bit of information that anybody can have. What makes the difference between someone who is going to hell and someone who's going to heaven? I, you will not stand before me on Judgment Day. You will not stand before Brian or Steve. Or your cabin leaders you're going to stand before god so it's only god's answer that matters on this i've asked brian to type up some scripture verses the first set of verses we're going to look at have to deal with the importance of faith and belief before i get to these verses though i want to just look at some different options that people have suggested is the deciding factor between someone who is saved and someone who is not saved. The first thing people have suggested, well, it's works. If you are a good enough person, then you get to go to heaven. A question that comes along with that is, how do you know you've done enough good deeds that you, you cross that tipping point, that line? How do you ever know you've done enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds? Is enough right theology the difference between the damned and the saved? In which case the question is, how, what does your, what's the saving score on your theology test? Is it 85%? You get 86% of your, on your theology test score, right? You go to heaven. 84%? Sorry, see you later. Is it right theology? Is it faith? Is faith the difference? And if faith, what do you mean by faith? Is, some people think faith is a feeling of certitude, a feeling of confidence. Some days, you feel so confident there's a God that He has saved you, you think, I'm a man of faith today. The next day, you feel weak and trembling and you're not even sure if you believe in God exists. Your feelings have changed dramatically. Is that what the Bible means by faith? And how do you know on the confidence meter, what's enough faith to be saved? Let's look at these verses that talk about the importance of faith and belief. This is from John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, now remember, this is not just my opinion. This isn't just the opinion of one of the religions. This is the God who created the universe, pres- revealed, wrote the scriptures, inspired men to write it, preserved it for us. These are the words of God became man. This is the reality you guys have to deal with. If you want to know what you must do to be saved, listen carefully to these verses. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What's the condition in this verse? Hearing his word and believing him who sent him. Believing Jesus. We're going to look at what this belief means. Let's look at the next one. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The saving condition of the first one was believing on the Father who sent Jesus. saving condition in this, whoever looks on the Son and believes in the Son. Let's look at the next verse. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Do you remember the story where Paul was in prison, an earthquake? Shook so hard it broke all the bonds, and rather than the people, the prisoners fleeing, they stayed there. And the jailer heard the earthquake, heard the chains break, thought all the prisoners must be gone, and that surely his life would be forfeit because he had let the prisoners escape. But to his relief, he saw Paul and Silas there. And while he had his light flash before his eyes, he said, What must I do to be saved? This is the answer they gave believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's look at the next one. This is Paul writing to the Romans. For we hold that one is justified or made right with God by faith apart from the works of the law. This is Paul's letter to Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's the deciding factor here? Faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's go on to the next one. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, where there was people who accepted Christ, who they were, but the, the doctrine of grace was making them uncomfortable. So they were saying, no, you got there's got to be something you can do. There's got to be works you can do to make the salvation applicable to you. And Paul's saying, who's deceived you? Who's bewitched you? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could save ourselves by being good enough, Jesus' agony and misery on the cross was wasted. Because we could have have saved ourselves. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now there's something new in this verse. What's the deciding factor of what it means to be saved in this verse? The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Does anybody remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? In order to be saved you must be what? You must be born again. Spiritually speaking we're dead in our trespasses. Regeneration is where God supernaturally brings his faith, his spiritual life to a dead cold heart. It's a supernatural rebirth. It's the difference between a corpse and a live human. All the, in the corpse, everything's there, all the parts to function, but there's no life. Regeneration is something that's a critical component of what it means to be saved. Let's go on to the next one. Okay. Those verses seem to be, make it extremely clear that we are not saved by our works. Works will not save us. Elsewhere it says, our righteousness is filthy rags. Some people accept their lying, their fornication, their adultery, yeah, that's a filthy rag. What does the verse say? Our righteousness is filthy rags. Our church attendance, our giving to the poor, our self-centered prayers, our righteousness, that's motivated by selfish motivations, is a filthy rag to God. But there's more to the story here in the Bible. These are verses that cite the importance of obedience. Let's look at these verses and see what's the deciding factor in this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But look carefully. What's the deciding factor in this verse? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what's the component here that separates the saved from the damned? person who does the will of God the Father. Let's look at the next one. I tell you, on the day, this is Jesus' words again. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is a chilling verse. My brother just got married, he was working on his house. I haven't told anybody in my family the story. And my handyman brother, we worked together in the business, he sent me over on a Saturday morning that I had planned to do stuff to go help my brother Joel with some mudding stuff. And this rankled me. I got frustrated and I got into this job and I was so frustrated because Jonathan is so picky about things and so there's this pressure of... He's asking me to do this, but I know when he comes, he's just going to criticize everything I do. So why is it he doing here? And under my breath, I couldn't believe it. I actually cursed him. And I thought, I couldn't believe. No one else was in the room. Couldn't believe that came out of it. And I was broken. This is the brother I love, I pray for. Did I seriously just curse him? God, forgive me. Don't let me do that. Our words matter. Jesus is every careless word they speak. And sorry Jonathan, by the way, if you end up hearing this talk someday. But for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's look at the next one. Okay, this is probably the most chilling, convicting passage in all of Scripture. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. They will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I'll give you the, the background of this story, this glimpse into the future. The goats came Expecting to receive entrance to heaven. But Jesus said, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't feed me. They said, Lord, didn't we do wonderful things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? We We were Christian celebrities. We people looked up to us. We were God's anointed ones. You're saying, we, seriously, we were the face of evangelical Christianity. We don't get to come into heaven? Jesus said, you didn't minister to me when I was hungry, when I was sick, when I was in prison. The right, the sheep came in and they couldn't believe that Jesus, that they had served these people and it turns out that they were actually serving Jesus when they had humbly, and didn't care about who noticed, when they served the poor and the sick, the naked. Keith Green, any of you here familiar with Keith Green? Yeah, he had a huge, okay, look him up. Amazing testimony. He was a dynamically talented, pianist, at the age of three. As a boy, he signed a record deal because he had an amazing voice and ability to write catchy tunes. He catapulted to stardom and God got a hold secular stardom, and God got a hold of him and for his brief life, he was so on fire for God. He didn't have any denominational first, second generation hang ups. He just had this passion to read God's Word. And he became a prophet to his generation. He was often criticized. Uh, he alienated a lot of people because he just saw things black and white. And he saw the North American church as asleep in the light, as apostate, having lost their first love, lukewarm, that God was going to spew them out of his mouth. That they had, they were so fat on Bible teaching and so spiritually dead. And it, you listen to Keith Green's song, there's so much passion. He sings about this in one of these. That it's not about what they believed in this verse that made the difference. It's about what they did that separates them. Next one. This is Jesus in the Ascension, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does Jesus instruct us to do in in changing people from children of wrath to the children of God? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and teaching them, is it say teaching them to believe all that I have commanded you? It says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let's go to the next one. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Is that the last one? Okay, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Is there one more? No. okay. Oh! This is what James says in James. This is the reason Martin Luther said this is an epistle of straw. And he would have been happy to have this book cast out of the canon, which is the authorized the books that claim to speak for God. Because James says you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Remember how I said Martin Luther hated God, he's the one who spent hours in the confessional to the point where his Roman Catholic priest would say, Martin Luther, get out of here and go commit a real sin. Don't come back until you have a real sin to confess to me, because I'm sick of hearing all these made-up, know-nothing sins. Martin Luther, though, could not shake the sense of the holiness of God. As a young man, he was struck off knocked off his horse by lightning. He came so close to death, in his ignorance, he said, Saint Anne, save me. I vow to become a monk. You know, there's some. we live in a world of danger. Everywhere you go, and once you become a parent, you become a lot more aware of what a world of danger we live in. I watch my kids play in a playground, and it's like I'm always watching this horror movie play ahead, just a little bit of what could happen here people block out this world of danger that we live in, but there's some people who can't block out the world of danger that we live in, and to them, all they see is the danger of this world. Well, with Martin Luther, he could not shake the holiness of God, and the fact that he was a sinful man, and that God was a holy, all-powerful God. And he had this burning question, am I ever doing enough? to satisfy the holy demands of God. He searched the scriptures, and every time he saw the scriptures, they were rebuking him. Every time he looked at the law, there was no comfort, it was a rebuke, it was a slap. Here's another way I failed. If he didn't do a sin of commission, which is a sin he committed, action, he would see a sin of omission, which is a sin he omitted, that he had not done. And so every time he went to the scripture, it was just beating him, and he grew to hate this sense of God. This is why when he saw this, Martin Luther came to understand what Paul said, that the just shall be made right by faith. Completely transformed him it gave him the courage to stand before the the most powerful rulers of his day. And he turned the church upside down and he started a worldwide revival as people came to understand the doctrine of being saved by faith, which I'm getting ahead of myself But this is why when, J- when Martin Luther saw this verse, he said, James, it's an epistle of straw. But I believe this is, in, this is God's word. And it says, you see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So there was all those verses that made the airtight case that we were saved by faith, that we could not be saved by works. But then we have a bunch of verses that talk about your actions matter to God. If you read 1 John, he says it in as many different ways as he can in his five chapters. If you love God, you will obey God. If you are not obeying God and you claim to love God, you're a liar. God's commandments are not burdensome. So, obedience matters to God. But also, faith is the only way to be saved. So, how can this work? How does salvation work? Before we can answer this, before we can understand a solution, we have to look at what the problem is. Paul says that his message was urging people, be reconciled to God. So our problem is alienation from God. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our sin is what alienates us from God. So to start, we have to to understand this problem. First, we have to look at God. God is completely all-powerful. He is good. He's wise. He's also the moral lawgiver. God is the one who defines reality. God is the one whether, who says where it's okay and when it's okay to have sex and who you can have sex with. God is the one who defines what our eating It should, should be. God is the one who defines what our thought life should be. What's a good thought? What's a bad thought? God is the one who defines what our healthy motivations, what we should worship. God's the one who defines that. God defines it based on His love. Everything He asks us to do is for our good. God is also a holy God who cannot stand sin. In fact, He's so pure and so good that He has a holy hatred for sin. Now some people said, I I can believe in a God of love, but I, I can't believe in a God of wrath. Really now, tell me, this is my response, how can you have a God of love and not have a God of wrath when there is brokenness and evil and wicked in the world? I hate mosquitoes. I have this much love for mosquitoes. If you step on a mosquito, I care nothing. I continue to be a man of love. If one of you were to inappropriately touch my five-year-old daughter, who I love as much as anything in this world, I would be a man of extreme wrath. What made the difference? Why am I a man of wrath when you touch my daughter, but I'm not? I'm a man of love when you kill a mosquito. It's because I have infinitely more love for my daughter than I do for the mosquito. You magnify this with God. God has infinitely more love than I do. So, the more you love something, the more angry it makes you to see something destroy it or to watch it self-destruct. I would get mad at my own kids if I saw them self-destructing because not because I just want them to conform to my mold, I, I want them to do that. But it's because I don't want them to suffer, and they are inflicting pain on themselves, and it makes me mad, but it's, my, it's not my being a control freak that makes, that makes me angry. Maybe that's part of it, I'm sinful. But it's the fact that I love my child so much and do not want to see them suffer. So for me, if you have a God of love, and you have brokenness in the world, you have a God of wrath. We each proclaim our own goodness. We look at pornography thinks it's not hurting anybody, it's no big deal. Lustful thoughts, it's not hurting anybody, big de- no big deal. For us, we don't understand what's God so upset about. These are just little tiny sins. They don't hurt anybody, they don't matter. But Satan is the father of lies, we deceive ourselves. But you know when we have a wake-up call is when we are sinned against us. You don't think it's wrong to look at pornography? How do you feel if this same impulse that makes you lust causes another man to rape your sister? It's the same sinful impulse. Suddenly you hate that sin with a passion. That's a little bit of taste of the wrath God has towards us. God is also instilled in us a sense of justice. Which means that God hates sin, God must punish sin. Back to this rape scenario. The man who rapes your sister is convicted, brought to trial. He comes before the judge and says, ah, what he did was no big deal, I'm just going to let him go. Is that satisfying for you? Or does some part of you say, that is not justice. Justice needs to be served in this case. That's a little bit of the sense that we know deep down that if there's a God and He's a God of justice, justice must be served. And this is why we hate the idea of God apart from the Gospel. It's because we know none of we have not lived up to God's standard for us. And we're afraid in our honest moments of what this justice might look like. That's the problem where God's concerned. Let's move. look at the problem where we are concerned. God made us to be in relationship to Him, which means God made us to be under Him, to be obedient to Him, to surrender to Him. Where when you are in a right relationship with God, God is God and you are not. God defines what is right and wrong and you obey. There's a beautiful harmony, there's a joy in getting to serve God. God made us to want to worship Him. He made us to put His glory on display so that we could enter the joy of the Trinity. And as we worship God, everything He made, all our chemical reactions in our body, the physical matter which God says is good, our thrills, The rush, all that was designed to kick in in the most magnificent experience of worshiping God, where God tantalized and caressed all five of our our senses. And we just are completely enthralled by this God. It It was supposed to be a satisfying experience unlike no other. We were to be so loved by God, so secure in Him, that we could selflessly give to the fellow humans around us. God gave us a mission to work with our hands, to create works of art, to beauty, to tend the garden, to create beauty that glorified God out of the chaos around us. We were created to be in right relationship with God on a vertical plane, we were created to be in right relationship with man on a horizontal plane, and we were supposed to be in right relationship with nature on a beneath us plane. What happened to break this harmony? God put one tree... There's a cat in here, does that matter? No, forget the cat. Sorry. (laughs) Key point here. What happened in the garden? God gave them... I don't know how many different kinds of fruit trees. Can you imagine what fruit in the Garden of Eden must have tasted like if you can have a taste of what a, a ripe mango tastes like today? Oh man, the Garden of Eden must have been something. So God gives them all these different fruits, it's probably amazing flavors that we can't even fathom. We have an incredible palate that God gave us. But he says, there's one tree I don't want you to touch. Does this sound like a restrictive, overbearing God? He gives them the whole garden full of variety and says, you can have everything except for this one tree. Eve, Walking in the garden, the snake, who we find out later, is a fallen Satan, Satan who brought evil into this world, Satan who was the most beautiful, magnificent of all the angels, whose job was to be the worship leader in heaven. He got to be at the front seat, worshiping this magnificent God. And he fell from glory saying, I don't want to be a worshiper, I want to be worshipped. And Satan fell from heaven, brought angels with him, they became demons. He enters the garden. He tells Eve, did God, why isn't God letting you eat these trees? And Eve says, he lies, Twist God's word. Eve says, well, we're allowed to eat most of them, just not this one. Huh? Satan says, oh, I know what God's up to here. You can't trust that guy. He does not have your best interest in mind. He knows that if you eat from this, you will be like a god. You'll know right and wrong. He's almost saying, you'll get to be the one who decides what's right and wrong. Can you imagine the power of getting to decide what's right and wrong? You don't have to be anybody's slave. God knows that if you eat this, it's just going to make this whole you dying thing, that was just him making it up. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the essence of what he said. So Eve reaches out, takes the fruit, says, this is, this is good. She gives it to Adam. But then God comes for their daily walk, and something has broken in the w- world. Something has changed. No longer do, are they excited about fellowship with God. Now they are scared of God, and they try to hide. Suddenly, God is no longer someone they look forward to fellowshipping with. God is now the ogre. God is now the one they're afraid of, and they run from God. This is what sin does. Sin breaks our relationship with God. Once that relationship with God is broken, all of creation starts to shatter. Like a beautiful stained glass where one rock hits it and the shatters go through all the rest of the stained glass masterpiece. Our relationship with God was severed so we no longer are satisfied by worshiping Him. Now, we are always searching. Remember how we talked about a car, a gasoline engine only runs on gasoline, and if you pour orange juice, apple juice, milk, perfume, nothing in that will make that engine run. You'll just keep pouring down and it will never satisfy. This is the curse of a humanity. This is the curse of worshipers who don't worship God, is that anything they now search for is never enough. Whether you look for it in your work, in your efforts, in your sex life, in your food, in your relationships, in your romantic relationships, in your movies, in your entertainment, it never satisfies. We become enslaved. Satan knows all about this insatiable desire for God, and he uses that very desire to program us to become self-destructing slaves. God also made us to love each other with a selfless love. Now what happens if you have a hose and you disconnect it from the spigot and you try to pour water out, only as much water in the hose, once that runs out, the hose is empty. It has no more love in it. This is a picture of humans. When we try to love each other, when we are not so loved by God, we do not have enough love in us to love each other the way we are supposed to. Sin is deceptive. Satan is the father of lies. We did not like this ultimate reality of a good God we were living in, so we make up a false reality. And Satan has drugged that reality, and he's constantly violating us, like a man who drugs a drink on a college campus and then violates the woman while she's under the delusion. While she's That's exactly what Satan is doing to us. Sin is rebellion against God. When we said, I want to be God, we cut ourselves off from God. When we said, I want to be God, we said, I don't want to worship God, I want to be worshipped. And now when we don't worship, when we don't get worshipped, we get full of bitterness and envy. In this broken state we're in, people try one of two things. One, they try to completely forget about God, and they continue to live in rebellion, spitefully using God, enjoying the most vile things, living a sensual life, living for pleasure in any way they can. That's one approach. We look and we see people, at the end of their life, so broken by their sin and their willful rebellion of God. But there's a different approach people have in trying to deal with this brokenness, and that is trying to fix this relationship with God on their own efforts. They think if disobedience made the problem, maybe I can fix this. Maybe I can earn back the approval of this holy God. Maybe I can satisfy this wrath I feel by earning my way. Maybe I can do enough. You know, this, it's, this spirit of trying to earn back God's love by your works is the most miserable place you can be in. The, tr- the position of trying to earn God's approval. Because there's no joy in serving God, so you're miserable. Have you ever been on a work crew where you're doing a job you all hate, the weather is so hot... You're working hard, but you look over and you see someone who is just sitting there with a drink. You hate that guy. Because he's not working, he's not doing his share. This is the first way this Pharisee spirit, by Pharisee spirit I mean trying to earn God's approval on your own. You look at Christians who are going to church, but they're still watching all the movies that you really want to see, but you are trying so hard to be a good Christian. They're listening to the music you really want to listen to, but you're trying so hard to be a good Christian. You start to hate that Christian, you judge that Christian, you criticize it. You look out at the world and you secretly envy those people who get to enjoy whatever cultural thrill. Satan's throwing at you. But there's another person in this work crew that you hate. Mr. Worker's pet who is working their little tail off and always getting praised. You hate that guy too. Because it's making you realize there's more you could be doing. This is the whole problem of working for God's approval. It's a miserable experience. And the sad thing is it's not enough. Because you can never do enough to satisfy a holy God. You know, at the root of both of these choices that humans have, works, religion, self-effort, there's a belief that God is not really good. That we need to try to win Him back by our efforts. And at the rebellious group of people, the lie there is that God's not really good. His laws are not really for my benefit. So at the root of both of these approaches, there's the same lie and the same misunderstanding that God is not good. So this is the problem we find ourselves in. God's holy. God hates sin. God cannot be around sin. We are rebellious. Even if God were to say, come here, I'm not going to hurt you. Let me give you a hug. We are scared of God. Peter, when he saw that Jesus had the power to, to just save those fish, Peter said, away from me. I am a sinful man. If you look in the Bible, anytime people have an experience of God, they tremble. Is it... Is it Isaiah who said, I'm a man of unclean lips? He said, burn my mouth. Make I, I can't even speak in your presence. Moses said, God, I just want to see your face. <laughs> Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, if you see my face, you won't be able to handle it. You will die. But I'll show you my back. I'll show you just enough glory for you to handle. Because if I, in your broken, fallen state, came into my presence, you would be incinerated. Sin cannot handle God's presence. And we are ruined by sin. Because we are broken from God, we are empty, we are hurting, we are critical. We work harder, but all we do is we get discouraged that we are not doing enough. We start deceiving ourselves that we are doing enough, and then we start becoming with crittleness and all all our relationships just continue to splinter. We know God must have justice, justice must be served, and we're scared of what that justice might look like. And rebels need to be quarantined. You say, well, why can't God just let everybody into heaven? It's because rebels destroy paradise. If God just lets everybody into heaven, less than six hours after we're all in paradise, we'll have corrupted it and made it sinful earth again. So what's a God to do? This is the problem we find ourselves in. I'm going to describe God's rescue plan to save you. It's so unexpected, it's brilliant, but it came at an amazing cost. The problem was our alienation from God. How the solution is to be reunited with God. Theologians have wrestled with this for years of how exactly the cross of Christ takes away our sins. But the message that's crystal clear in scripture is that the cross of Christ takes away our sins. It does this in a few ways. One, Jesus said he came to destroy the works of the devil. What is the works of the devil? He's the father of lies. Satan's Two of Satan's primary lies are, sin is not really harmful. Sin is no big deal. And his other lie is that God is not good. God does not love you. God cannot be trusted. The cross of Christ is a very, was a very public way to die. And the Romans would crucify people right on the busiest highways. So that when people looked at the cross, they would say, oh boy, okay, that is what happens if I rebel against Rome. This is the death that Jesus chose. He was slain before the foundation of the world, but he chose to die the most gruesome, visible public death, which was crucifixion, where the people on the highways could see. But when Jesus died on the cross, his message to us was not, this is what rebellion against Rome brings. He said, look at my broken, bleeding, tormented body. This is what sin does to you. I have never sinned. This is what your sin did to me. Don't ever buy the lie again that sin is harmless, that sin does not matter. If your blinders would remove pe- were removed people, you would see how devastating sin is. But also the message on the cross is that even though you were so broken in your willful rebellion sin, I would rather die than live without you. I would rather take your consequences. So that is one thing that the cross accomplishes. But the cross also takes away our sins by Jesus taking our sins into himself. It says, becoming sin for us. He's our propitiation. This is the part of what Jesus did that gets me. This is the part that should stir your heart towards love. Jesus knew His cross was coming. He knew He had to die. He had told His disciples about it. But the full horror of what He would have to experience was hidden from Him. Then the night before He died, He went out to a garden with His friends. He says, look guys, can you stay awake with me? I'm not sure, but there's a pretty terrible ordeal coming for me. He gets out into the garden. He starts that time of sweet communion with his father that he had enjoyed for all eternity. And something's different this time. He starts to experience fear, guilt, shame, things he had never experienced before. And it's not just a little shame, a little guilt. It's the accumulated guilt and shame for every rapist, for every pedophile, for every murderer, for every blasphemer. It's the accumulated shame and guilt. And it's a crushing blow. He's terrified. He starts to taste just a little bit of what this separation, this wrath tastes like. And he goes, No! I can't handle this! God, is there any other way that we can do this? Can can you take this cup? I can't handle. I can't handle being separated from you. I can't. I can't handle your disapproval. The shame. This is torment. This is killing me. And he cried. And his sweat turned to blood because he was under more physical stress and duress than any human ever had been under. He was alone. His disciples had fallen asleep. They couldn't stay awake with him. God, is there any way you can change this? I can't do this. In the first garden, man says, I will be God. I will disobey. You, I want to be in the place of God. In the second garden, where, God, where man had said, I want to be in the place of God and rebelled. In the second garden, God says, I will put myself in the place of man. And I will set an example. I will fulfill the righteousness that they were unable to fulfill. And he says... Not my will, but your will. But when Jesus did that, when we surrender to God, we are flooded with peace. When Jesus surrendered to God, his torment intensified. He started experiencing hell for you and me. This is not just a story that we get to watch on a movie. This is your story. He endured your hell. He endured your fear, your guilt, your shame, your consequences. This is you in the garden. Your sin being put on the Savior. It is your sin crushing him, whipping him. It is your sins that are beating the crown of thorns into his head. It is your sin that as that nail goes into that wrist, the sand's shooting pain through every nerve in Christ's body. It's your sin. But Jesus did it all for love. Some liberal theologians mock the cross and they say, What kind of a God is satisfied by child abuse? They have no idea what went on at the cross. Do you think it was easy for God the Father to crush His Son? Anybody who says that has never been a parent. My son, Justin, had a, had a seizure related to fever, and it was terrifying to hold my unresponsive, twitching, gasping for breath baby in my arms. A couple of days later, they needed to do a blood sample, get a blood sample from him. His, his little veins are covered with adipose tissue, which is chub. And they had to dig around in those, in that little soft skin for Blood. And it, was, it's, I don't, it wouldn't seem to go on forever. I don't know, it was 20 minutes, but it was a long 20 minutes. And the whole time Justin is screaming and looking at his eyes, pleading with me, Dad, make it stop. I had to turn my face away because I, I couldn't handle this. This is a tiny thing. Have you heard the story of the railroad? This dad who loved his, his son, had fellowship with his son. His job was to lower and raise the drawbridge because this bridge went over a canal that ships had to go through. And if the railroad was down, the ships would be destroyed as they went through. And if the railroad had to be lifted for the ship to go through. But this son, whom this dad loved so much, was playing out there, coming out to get his dad. And to the dad's horror, he noticed that the bridge was up and there was a train coming And his son was under the bridge. He had to choose. Do I let everybody on that train die? Or do I crush my son? And he crushed his son. This is not some God of wrath behind an appeasing son of God. This is a God of intense love for you. A God who knows every bit of your failures, of your rebellion. A God who sees how you live, claim to know God, but you live like an atheist most of your life. How every time you worry, you're actually insulting God's wisdom. Every time you sin, you're saying, God, your laws are stupid. Out of my life. It's that every time... God gives you thousands of gifts every day and you complain about the way things are, like you insult Him. But this God continues to love you so much. God the Son was willing to endure the wrath of God for you. God the Father was willing to endure the agony of crushing His Son for you so that you could see through Satan's deceptions, through Satan's lies, so that you could see through this delusion you've been living in that God is not a harsh, unjust master. God is a kind love, even though it's so obvious through all creation that God's a good God with his gifts to us. We still listen to Satan's spiteful lies that God is not good, but the crash out so clearly, i'm good i love you i wish i could tell you how much i love you i wish you could start to fathom it to grasp how much i love you what more do i need to do to prove to you that i love you What more do I need to do to prove to you that you can trust me with your suffering? I've given you my son. I've let my son experience the worst pain and human suffering possible. What more do I need to do to convince you that I'm not the one who's going to condemn you? What more do I have to do to prove to you I am for you? I am not against you. Jesus endured that horrible ordeal, said it is finished. God's cup of wrath was poured out on Jesus and it's empty. That wrath that God feels towards sin was completely vented, completely spent. There's now an incredible offer to us. Jesus died. His followers were destroyed. Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death. He conquered the healing. And at that moment, we had just witnessed the worst tragedy in the human kind. We talked about the problem of evil. and People say, when you talk about the problem being free will, you're trying to get God off the hook. God put himself on the hook. He takes the consequences for our actions. God, the God of justice. You know, justice is not just punishing evildoers. Justice is healing. If you've had $500 stolen from you, justice is not just spanking or throwing in jail the man who stole that $500. Justice is restoring that $500 to you. If you are raped, justice is not just seeing the rapist receive capital punishment. Justice is also having the psychological and emotional torment healed. And this is why the cross is such a, the resurrection, I'm sorry, is such an integral part of God's justice, because God wasn't just about forgiving sins. He was also about healing the hurts, healing the brokenness. Healing cannot happen until we are brought into right relationship with God. This goes back to the beginning of our talk. This is the difference between what saves you and what damns you. If you are in a right relationship with God, you are saved. If you are not in a right relationship with God, if you are not reconciled to God, you are not in Christ. And you are still on the road to alienation from God. Alienation from God ends in hell and misery. So, what's the distinction? How do you know you are with God? Scripture is if you have those next verses. Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Let's quickly just look at the next verse. Repent, therefore, this was the message of the apostles, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is not just saying I'm so moved by this chapel the discussion tonight God I promise to be a better person. If that's all repentance was that would be bad news. If you just leave this room saying oh I'm so determined to try to be a better person you've missed the gospel. Because you're still leaving this chapel saying, I'm going to try harder to save myself. Repentance says, I cannot save myself. I am helpless to save myself. I need Jesus' gift of salvation. I need to put myself under his blood. I need to receive his gift of salvation. Going out of here, on your own works is still that same willful rejection of God, it's the same rejection of God as the person who says, I don't give a toot about what God wants for me. Repentance says, this is the heart of repentance. Repentance and faith are the saving aspects that make the difference. Repentance says, I no longer want to be God. There is, I no longer want to be the one who decides right and wrong. I no longer be the one trying to save myself. I don't know how I'm going to be made right with you because I can't do it. You are holy, I am sinful, but I repent, I make you the God of my life again. But there's also saving faith. All those verses at the beginning talked about how important faith is. Faith says, I enter God's glory. I see God as a God of goodness. I have nothing to fear in God's presence, not because of my righteousness. I don't come waving my flag, God, look at my filthy, stinky rags, are these good enough for you? I come to God with boldness saying, I'm coming in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who loved me so much, he's willing to die for me. God, I'm receiving your gift. I come before you fearless in boldness because I've received your gift. It's believing that what God has done is enough. It's believing that what God has done is is reality. It's not just something our denomination makes up, but it's a historically verified fact and a moment in history. That's what saving faith is. People, you need for the rest of your life to understand the difference. You need to understand both faith and repentance. Because if you don't understand repentance, that it's a radical change in life from saying, I want to be God, you may think your actions don't matter. But if you think that repentance is all that matters and not saving faith, you're just back to trying harder to please God. You've got to understand that it's a gift. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith. I'm sorry, I'm really taking going overboard tonight, uh, time-wise. But I want to look at this question. Do our works matter? Do obe- does our obedience matter to God? According to these verses, does our obedience matter to God? Why does our, Yes, I think the answer is a resounding yes from the beginning to the end. But why, do our, why does our obedience matter if we are saved regardless of what we do? Christianity is the exchanged life. Jesus lived the perfect life, which means Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins, He gives us the credit of His righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees us as if we lived perfectly like Jesus did. And he sees Jesus as a sinner. It's an exchange light. So if God sees me as having lived perfectly, why does it matter how I live? At the root of that question is a heart that is not been transformed to see the love of God as it is. You still do not understand salvation, if that's a nagging question in your mind. Because when you are made right with God, you see God as so awe-droppingly beautiful, heart-poundingly lovely, that you would see anything God asks me to do is for my good. If your parents put before you your favorite dessert and they say, eat this, son, and you're hungry, this looks so good, you're saying, okay, remind me again, mom and dad, why do I have to eat this dessert here? You're gonna love me whether I eat this or not, right? It's missing the point. This isn't a command to rebel against if you are loving. It's you realize, this is for my delight. This is for my good. Once deception, the power of deception has been broken, sin no longer looks desirable to you. When you are fully sanctified, sin no longer becomes the same struggle. You don't have the same struggle with pornography because in your moments of clarity, where God's Spirit is working in you, it's repulsive, it's ugly, it's like eating dog poop. You have no, it's like poisonous dog poop. You have no desire. Do you feel like you've really won the victory over eating dog poop? Do you you walk around strutting? Look at me, ex-dog poop eater. I licked that. I mean, I I beat that. Do you feel any moral pride for not eating dog poop? Of course not. Do you feel any pride for not having cut off your arm? Of course not, because it's so repulsive, it's so stupid, it's so harmful. That's what all sin is. is It's self-destruction. It's repulsive. Once you understand the beauty of God and you recognize that His commandments are not burdensome, the whole question of why be good when God loves us anyway disappears. Because being good is what we want. You know, when I fell madly in love with my wife, I was so impressed with what a good person I immediately became. I was others-focused, I was selfless, I was a true gentleman, I was morally pure. Everything I did was motivated by my obsession with her, by my love for her. You know what's going to change your life as you go back home and you want to live a life that glorifies God? You leave here going, man, Jesus endured this for me, Jesus is worthy of my worship, he's worthy of my obedience. If you then forget about Jesus and go, I am determined to be a better person, you look away, you take your eyes off the cross and you try to be a good person, you're going to get discouraged, you're going to break your commitments. Because we are struggling with the old man and the deception every day. We're still going to continue to fail. But when you fail, What do you do when you get out of here, you've you've committed to obey God, to read your Bible, to memorize. What are you going to do when you fail? Oh man, I blew it. God gave me this beautiful chance to accept his gospel and I blew it. Are you going to say, God, how can I, through my works, make this up to you? Or are you going to say, God, thank you for reminding me that the whole message of the cross was I am powerless to be good on my own. This failure should not have come as a surprise to me. Because if I could have been good enough on my own, then you died in vain. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me in my total helplessness. Be like the thief on the cross. Nothing to offer. No years of service left. He's dying in a few hours. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus accepts him. What happens when you let the truth of that, that you are remembered again that God loves you, even though you fail? You are going to get up with a whole new motivation and desire. To serve others, to love others, and as your relationship with God is restored on this plane, as you start being satisfied by Him, by worshiping Him, by being out in nature, by listening to your worship songs, by letting the God, God's word transform you, as you start falling in love with God and worshiping Him, you are going to find your addictions losing their hold. You are going to be set free once you start being. Wallowing, as Brian likes to say, in God's love, where you feel so overwhelmed by God's love, you're going to find your human relationships improving. Because pride and critical spirit and comparison and worrying about who notices, your obsession, see, in our fallen state, our goal is to try to make people like us has been probably my biggest captivity. I try to make people like me. And it's a miserable way to live because they're not worried about, they're not even thinking about me. They're worried about whether I like them. You get two people together worried about whether they like each other. They both come away miserable thinking the other person doesn't like me when they they weren't even thinking about each other. There's no way to tell if people like you or not. It's a miserable goal. But when you go, God loves me. God is... so in, and so in love with me, that he was willing to die for me, that I am valuable to him, he knows my name. Your motivation now with your relationships is not to try to make people like you, your goal is to try to show that you love them. And as I, you try, if that's your goal, that you try to show that you love them, your relationships start to transform. It's been such a freeing truth in my life. On the days where my goal is to try to show people that I love them, I have a much more satisfying day than the day where I'm trying to win their approval. We were given a mission. I also want to talk about on Saturday, the final talk, our sanctification. Where do we go from here? I've gone way overboard, but this is the most... Brian said at the beginning, this was what camp was all about. Hoping that you students would understand this. And I really want you to be like the Bereans. Test the scripture. Get time in your word. Ask God to make these things clear for you. But remember, what is the difference between someone who is saved and someone who is not? Someone who has saving faith. You acquire saving faith by repentance. And you receive a reconciled relationship with God. And with a reconciled relationship with God, who is God? Who gets to define what's right and wrong? It says in Romans, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. This is part of it. There used to be the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the ultimate power over the world. But the Christians adopted the slogan, for Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you, as wonderful as this message of salvation is, if you are receive a reconciled relationship with God, Jesus is going to be Lord. He's going to be Lord over your entertainment choices, over your work choices, over your friend choices, your internet usage. He's going to be Lord over all of that. Are you going to be immediately sanctified and perfect in all these areas? No. But you're going to find that now, instead of just flipping on this movie you know that's going to give you bad thoughts for a week, there's now going to be a struggle. There's going to be a new birth. If through the word of truth, the Spirit has regenerated you tonight, this is something that none of us can bring. We can maybe get you, manipulate you to say something, but we can't bring the new birth. You can't even bring the new birth. You have to beg God. Give me this new birth. If you have the new birth, there will now be two wars and factions. There will now be part of you that says, don't watch the movie, and you're going to struggle with this. Now it's going to come through, where do I find the motivation to not watch this movie? Are you going to forget the gospel and say, try hard, try hard, don't do this, don't do this, fall right back into your habit of self-salvation? Or are you going to say, God, show me the beauty of the cross again? Are you going to stamp that picture of the cross over your movie choice and go, thank you, Lord, for this reminder that this is why you're telling me don't watch this, because this is where it ends, in brokenness. Thank you for reminding me that you love me. I'm just, I'm 33, I'm not 40. (laughs) I gotta stop my hard living. I'm only 30, I don't even know if I'm 33, I might only be 32. I'm only 32. (laughs) Every year in my life, I come to a little deeper appreciation of what the gospel is. So in my hour and 15 minute talk, sorry, I have not plumbed the depths of what the gospel is. But I hope I've planted a seed, I hope I've given you a glimpse of what the gospel is, and that you will, between you and God, like a newborn baby, cry out to God, save me, I am helpless to save myself. God, this is not going to be just an emotionally manipulated change in your life. If there's a change in your life, it's going to be because the Spirit supernaturally works in you. I'm going to close in prayer and then the Ecola team team's going to come up and they have a short play. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for your love and what you have done. I thank you so much that salvation is your work. That whether we fail to show these campers love, this is your rescue scheme. And that fruit does not depend on our ability to persuade. Fruit comes by your supernatural action, your supernatural working. Lord, we look forward to an eternity with the ones in this group that you have rescued and plucked out of their misery. We look forward, Lord, to seeing how you are going to bring your healing love and your victory into the hurt and brokenness in each one of these homes. Lord, I just pray that you, by your sovereign Holy Spirit, would grant saving faith to every single person in this room. Amen.